God who speaks, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your commandment is clear, enlightening the eyes. May your spirit illumine the word that our eyes may be opened and our souls revived. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our first reading today is from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I will sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice wines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected to yield grapes, but it yielded rotten grapes. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it reveal while why did it yield rotten grapes? For now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove the hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down the wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a wasteland, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the cherished garden. He expected justice, he saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. Our gospel reading may sound familiar to that. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Jesus said, listen then to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went away. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect the produce. But his tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Then he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce in harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. God of peace, sending your word vulnerable to a violent world. Take from us the closed fist of death. Reveal to us the open arms of love that we might stumble and fall into your hands through Jesus Christ, our victim and our Savior. Amen. One of my favorite bands is a husband and wife duo from Ohio, Over the Rhine. And, and they have a song that says, You are 80% angel, 10% demon, and the rest is hard to explain. <laughs> Those of you who have heard me preach for a while now, you know that I like to preach on that 80% part. Uh, that's the part I like talking about in myself and in you because I don't think that we hear it enough. There's so much negativity in our world. There's so much negativity in religion that I'd rather focus on the good. After all, Christianity claims to be good news. But so often it sounds like anything but. And yet if we're honest, that 80%, it ain't the whole story, is it? Sometimes we need to look at those less flattering parts of ourselves, that 10% demon. And that's what Jesus is doing in this parable. Once again, he is telling us the truth, but he is telling it slant. He is holding up a mirror for us to see those parts of ourselves that we'd rather not see. But pretending that a problem isn't there doesn't solve the problem, does it? Whether the problem's addiction or systemic racism or climate change or the border crisis, avoidance doesn't solve anything. Are we willing to take a look in the mirror that Jesus holds up for us to see? It's not always flattering. But mirrors tell the truth. And the truth will set us free. We just heard what's often referred to as the parable of the wicked tenants. And you may recall that Jesus is in a public confrontation with the chief priests and the elders of the temple. These are the most powerful religious people of his time. And last week, in the same confrontation with them, he told them the parable of the two sons, inviting these religious leaders to let go of their pride and to change their minds. It reminds me of that famous phrase that Oliver Cromwell said to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. He said, I beseech you, in the bowels of Christ, 
think it possible, you may be mistaken. That's Jesus' plea to the religious leaders of his time. It's his plea to us in our time. Think it possible, you may be mistaken. That was last week's parable. But this week, he turns up the heat even more, inviting us that it's not only possible that we might be mistaken, the situation is much worse than we think. Jesus tells us about a landowner who planted a vineyard and hires tenant farmers to take care of it in his absence. And at harvest time, the landowner sends out slaves to collect the produce, but they're seized and beaten And some of them are killed. Now, as a side note, I really wish that Jesus didn't tell us stories that had slaves in them. I wish he didn't do that, but he did. And of course, the reality is the world, the Bible, had slaves. And the Bible, at every point, is always addressing people where they are, not where they should be. And in addressing people where they are, it paints the possibility of something better, namely a world without slaves and masters, but where all are children of God. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. The possibility of something better. Now, if you're the landowner in this story and your slaves were beaten and killed, what would you do? Well, I'll tell you what I wouldn't do is just send more slaves and hope for a better outcome. That's exactly what the landowner does. Sends more slaves, and the same thing happens again. It's like, all right, fool me once, right? Shame on you. Fool me twice. Enough is enough. It's time for you to learn your lesson. These employees are acting like tyrants in the face of your cool-headed mercy, and at some point, you've got to lower the boom on them. Time to bring in some hired muscle and give them a taste of their own medicine. But notice, notice what the landowner does. He does the unthinkable. He sends his son, thinking, well, they will respect my son. Who would ever do such a risky, foolish thing? King Hussein bin Talal reigned over Jordan for 47 years. And over the course of his reign, there were several assassination attempts on his life, none of them successful. In the early 1980s, his security police informed him that there were 75 of his army officers that were plotting a military coup right at that moment, and they knew where the conspirators were. So they suggested, let's surround the building with our police and go arrest them all. And the king paused he said, bring me a small helicopter. And the king flew to where his army officers were plotting. And he told the pilot to leave without him if he heard gunshots. And so unarmed and alone, the king entered the room where his officers were conspiring. And he said to them, gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government to take over the country and install a military dictator. But if you do this, the country will be plunged into civil war and tens of thousands of innocent lives will die. But there is no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. 
That way only one man dies. After a moment of silence, each one of those officers came over and pledged their loyalty to their king. Commenting on the story, Ken Bailey says, King Hussein opted for total vulnerability. He acted nobly, and by doing so, he fanned the dying embers of the rebels' sense of honor into flame. The landowner in this parable takes the same path, hoping that the presence of his son might rekindle the honor of the tenant farmers. Because you see, the landowner knows something that many of us forget. When someone harms us, retaliation is not our only option. After all, all retaliation does is teach people that they should come at us harder the next time. It just keeps violence in circulation, ensuring that more people are harmed. But the path of total vulnerability in the face of violence, that holds within it the possibility that even the wicked might be redeemed. This is what Dr. King knew, what King Hussein knew, and this is what God knows as well. Now, unlike with King Hussein in the parable, it doesn't seem to work. The tenants kill the landowner's son. And Jesus asked the religious leaders what the owner should do when he returns and finds his son dead, and they respond, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. That's really interesting, isn't it? And that's what we would expect. See, we think that mercy works to a certain point, but eventually you have to use violence to stop violence. At some point, you've got to fight fire with... Thank you. See, we, see, we hear this phrase, right? At some point, you've got to fight fire with fire, and we forget how stupid it is. There's a reason that fire departments don't go around with flamethrowers. <laughs> because it doesn't work. Fighting fire with fire only makes more fire. And so Jesus responds to their assumption. The landowner will come and kill them all. And he quotes Psalm 118, which says, The stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is amazing in our eyes. Within that, that little quotation lies all of our hope. See, we think that there's an end to mercy at some point, either in this life or the next. Eventually, God's going to mete out judgment and God is going to get tough on crime. But Psalm 118 suggests something so much better than that. In telling the parable to the religious leaders, Jesus is inviting them to take a long, hard look in the mirror. To do a ruthless, moral inventory. To see themselves as the tenant farmers who, instead of caring for God's people, were acting like tyrants. They'd forgotten that they didn't own the place. That everything that they had was a gift to be stewarded and shared, not plundered and hoarded. That the temple didn't belong to them. It belonged to God and to God's people. They were stewards who were acting dishonorably. 
It's painful to look in the mirror and see that about yourself, isn't it? But it is a severe mercy. Now, over the years, the church has heard this parable, and we've often thought that it applies to other people, like, like the Jews. But this is an exercise in missing the point. Jesus is inviting us to see ourselves as those who have acted dishonorably, who have trusted in violence over vulnerability. And of course, he's right about that. The story isn't about someone else. It's about us. And no one likes to see that 10% of ourselves that we wish wasn't there. But if we can accept it, if we can accept it, instead of projecting our demons onto someone else, then there is hope. It's a severe mercy to see the truth. And the truth does set us free. But first, it gives us a swift kick in the rear. Jesus invites us to consider that the thing that we reject, the thing that we resist and fight, is the very thing that God is using to build something beautiful in our lives. That God willingly accepts our rejection and then uses it to create something amazing. God responds to our violence with vulnerability. And though we would expect God to respond to our ruthlessness with more ruthlessness, God is not simply a bigger version of ourselves. Thanks be to God. God takes our sin, our wrath, our violence, and sends back love. Not just once or twice, but again and again. And God does so in the foolish and in the certain hope that one day we will be won over by this vulnerable love. Though we may reject it, it remains the very cornerstone of our life, the foundation of our existence, God's eternal love for you. Though none of us like to look at the dark parts of ourselves, here is good news. God takes the fire of our violence and responds with the cooling waters of grace. The vulnerable love of God is willing to die rather than retaliate, trusting that love will one day rekindle in us the dying embers of our honor. In a world that feels like it is falling apart, where it seems that cruelty and dishonor will win the day, our king accepts our rejection and meets our cruelty with vulnerability and invites us to dare to trust that God's love will win in the end. Amen.